In law, an answer was originally a solemn assertion in opposition to someone or something, and thus generally any counterstatement or defense, a reply to a question or response, or objection, or a correct solution of a problem. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the common law, an answer is the first pleading by a defendant, usually filed and served upon the plaintiff within a certain strict time limit after a civil complaint or criminal information or indictment has been served upon the defendant. It may have been preceded by an optional pre-answer motion to dismiss or demur. If such a motion is unsuccessful, the defendant must file an answer to the complaint or risk an adverse default judgment. In a criminal case, there is usually an arraignment or some other kind of appearance before the defendant comes to court. The pleading in the criminal case, which is entered on the record in open court, is usually either guilty or not guilty. Generally speaking in private, civil cases there is no plea entered of guilt or innocence. There is only a judgment that grants money damages or some other kind of equitable remedy such as restitution or a permanent injunction. Criminal cases may lead to fines or other punishment, such as imprisonment. The famous Latin responsa prudentium, answers of the learned ones, were the accumulated views of many successive generations of Roman lawyers, a body of legal opinion which gradually became authoritative. During debates of a contentious nature, deflection, colloquially known as changing the topic, has been widely observed, and is often seen as a failure to answer a question. An affirmative defense to a civil lawsuit or criminal charge is a fact or set of facts other than those alleged by the plaintiff or prosecutor which, if proven by the defendant, defeats or mitigates the legal consequences of the defendant's otherwise unlawful conduct. In civil lawsuits, affirmative defenses include the statute of limitations, the statute of frauds, waiver, and other affirmative defenses such as, in the United States, those listed in Rule 8, C, of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. In criminal prosecutions, examples of affirmative defenses are self-defense, insanity, entrapment and the statute of limitations. Description. In an affirmative defense, the defendant may concede that they committed the alleged acts, but they prove other facts which, under the law, either justify or excuse their otherwise wrongful actions, or otherwise overcome the plaintiff's claim. In criminal law, an affirmative defense is sometimes called a justification or excuse defense. Consequently, affirmative defenses limit or excuse a defendant's criminal culpability or civil liability. A clear illustration of an affirmative defense is self-defense. In its simplest form, a criminal defendant may be exonerated if he can demonstrate that he had an honest and reasonable belief that another's use of force was unlawful and that the defendant's conduct was necessary to protect himself. Most affirmative defenses must be pleaded in a timely manner by a defendant in order for the court to consider them, or else they are considered waived by the defendant's failure to assert them. The classic unwaivable affirmative defense is lack of subject matter jurisdiction. The issue of timely assertion is often the subject of contentious litigation. The insanity plea. Among the most controversial affirmative defenses is the insanity defense, whereby a criminal defendant seeks to be excused from criminal liability on the ground that a mental illness, at the time of the alleged crime, prevented him or her from understanding the wrongful nature of his or her actions. Burden of proof. Because an affirmative defense requires an assertion of facts beyond those claimed by the plaintiff, generally the party who offers an affirmative defense bears the burden of proof. The standard of proof is typically lower than beyond a reasonable doubt. It can either be proved by clear and convincing evidence or by a preponderance of the evidence. In this respect, 
Affirmative defenses differ from ordinary defenses, which the prosecution has the burden of disproving beyond a reasonable doubt. Governing Rules Rule 8 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure governs the assertion of affirmative defenses in civil cases that are filed in the United States District Courts. Rule 8c specifically enumerates the following defenses, accord and satisfaction, arbitration and award, assumption of risk, contributory negligence, discharge in bankruptcy, estoppel, failure of consideration, fraud, illegality, injury by fellow servant, laches, license, payment, release, res judicata, statute of frauds, statute of limitations, waiver, and any other matter constituting an avoidance or affirmative defense. Rule 11 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure requires that affirmative defenses be based on knowledge, information, and belief, formed after an inquiry reasonable under the circumstances, and cannot consist of a laundry list of all known affirmative defenses. Affirmative versus negating defense. An affirmative defense is different from a negating defense. A negating defense is one which tends to disprove an element of the plaintiff's or prosecutor's case. An example might be a mistake of fact claim in a prosecution for intentional drug possession, where the defendant asserts that he or she mistakenly believed that the object possessed was an innocent substance. Because this defense simply shows that an element of the offense, knowledge of the nature of the substance, is not present, the defendant does not have any burden of persuasion with regard to a negating defense. At most the defendant has the burden of producing sufficient evidence to raise the issue. Fair use. In Campbell v. Acuff Rose Music, Inc., the United States Supreme Court held that fair use was an affirmative defense to copyright infringement. This means that in litigation on copyright infringement, the defendant bears the burden of raising and proving that the use was fair and not an infringement. However, fair use is not always an affirmative defense, the burden of persuasion may instead fall to the copyright owner in Digital Millennium Copyright Act, DMCA, infringement actions. In a case challenging a takedown notice issued under the DMCA, the Ninth Circuit held in Lens v. Universal Music Corporation that the submitter of a DMCA takedown request, who would then be the plaintiff in any subsequent litigation, has the burden to consider fair use prior to submitting the takedown request. Even if, as Universal urges, fair use is classified as an affirmative defense, we hold, for the purposes of the DMCA fair use is uniquely situated in copyright law so as to be treated differently than traditional affirmative defenses. We conclude that because 17 U.S.C. Section 107 created a type of non-infringing use, fair use is authorized by the law and a copyright holder must consider the existence of fair use before sending a takedown notification under Section 512c. Examples. The reply is a legal document written by a party specifically replying to a responsive declaration and in some cases an answer. A reply may be written when a party or non-moving party, the party who is not requesting relief from the court, is asserting a counterclaim or the court has ordered a reply. A reply, specifically in California, may be written, filed and served, when a party files a motion or request for an order, the non-moving party files a responsive declaration, then the moving party wants to file a legal document specifically replying to the responsive declaration. It is important to keep in mind that plaintiff in this context may also refer to an impleted party. So, if a defendant impledes a party, this new party is the third-party defendant and the original defendant is the third-party plaintiff. The third-party plaintiff must file a complaint on the third-party defendant, who then must answer. The court may order a reply to this third-party defendant's answer. In California, the filing of a reply is subject to CCP 1005 and the reply should be filed and served pursuant to these rules, typically five court days prior to a hearing C. California CCP 1005, b. In a court of law, a party's claim is a counterclaim if one party asserts claims in response to the claims of another. 
In other words, if a plaintiff initiates a lawsuit and a defendant responds to the lawsuit with claims of their own against the plaintiff, the defendant's claims are counterclaims. Examples of counterclaims include After a bank has sued a customer for an unpaid debt, the customer counterclaims, sues back, against the bank for fraud in procuring the debt. The court will sort out the different claims in one lawsuit, unless the claims are severed. Two cars collide. After one person sues for damage to his or her car and personal injuries, the defendant counterclaims for similar property damage and personal injury claims. United States. In U.S. federal courts, counterclaims can arise on various occasions, including for example, an attempt by the defendant to offset or reduce the amount or implications of the plaintiff's claim, a different claim by the defendant against the plaintiff, a claim by an impleted third-party defendant against the original defendant acting as a third-party plaintiff, and a claim by any party against another party who has made a crossclaim against them. Counterclaims versus crossclaims. Depending upon the location of where the lawsuit originated, the defending party has a period of time to file a countersuit, also known as a counterclaim, against the claiming party. This is a direct claim from the defending party against the party who initiated the lawsuit for concurrent claims, including being wrongfully sued. A crossclaim is a pleading made against a party who is a co-defendant or co-plaintiff. A crossclaim is against anyone who is on the same side of the lawsuit. An example of this is a manufacturing company who ships their product through a third-party transportation company to the buyer. Upon the products being inspected by the buyer, the buyer finds that the product has been damaged in shipping and refuses to pay. If the manufacturer sued the buyer, the buyer would serve an answer with a denial that the buyer owed money to the manufacturer and a crossclaim to the shipping company to compensate for the damages. Compulsory versus permissive. Under the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, FRCP, counterclaims are either compulsory or permissive. Permissive counterclaims comprise any claim that is not compulsory. Such claims may be brought, but no rights are waived if they are not. Courts rarely give permissive counterclaims the necessary supplemental jurisdiction to be brought. A claim is a compulsory counterclaim if, at the time of serving the pleading, the counterclaim arises out of the transaction or occurrence that is the subject matter of the opposing party's claim and the counterclaim does not require adding another party over whom the court cannot acquire jurisdiction. And when the action was commenced, there was the subject of another pending action. And either the opposing party sued on its claim by a process that established personal jurisdiction over the pleader on that claim, for example, not by a process such as attachment. Or, if personal jurisdiction was not established over the pleader, the pleader asserts some other mandatory counterclaim. This last, fourth, requirement is explained in the official notes as follows. When a defendant, if he desires to defend his interest in property, is obliged to come in and litigate in a court to whose jurisdiction he could not ordinarily be subjected, fairness suggests that he should not be required to assert counterclaims, but should rather be permitted to do so at his election. If, however, he does elect to assert a counterclaim, it seems fair to require him to assert any other which is compulsory within the meaning of Rule 13a. Clause, 2, added by amendment to Rule 13a, carries out this idea. It will apply to various cases described in Rule 4e, as amended, where service is effected through attachment or other process by which the court does not acquire jurisdiction to render a personal judgment against the defendant. Clause, too, will also apply to state courts jurisdictionally grounded on attachment or the like, and removed to the federal courts. Notes of Advisory Committee on 1963 Amendments to Rules. If the counterclaim is compulsory, it must be brought in the current action or it is waived and lost forever. Various tests have been proposed for when a counterclaim arises from the same transaction or occurrence, including same issues of fact and law, use of the same evidence, 
and logical relation between the claims. A cross-claim is a claim asserted between co-defendants or co-plaintiffs in a case and that relates to the subject of the original claim or counterclaim according to Black's Law Dictionary. A cross-claim is filed against someone who is a co-defendant or co-plaintiff to the party who originates the cross-claim. In common law, a cross-claim is a demand made in a pleading that is filed against a party which is on the same side of the lawsuit. U.S. Federal Courts. In the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure this is codified in Rule 13g. In the Federal Rules, a cross-claim is proper if it relates to a matter of the original jurisdiction. Proper jurisdiction is determined by a finding of whether the suit that is being initiated arises from the same transaction or occurrence that is the subject matter of the suit. Cross-claims, like joinder generally, can promote efficient, consistent resolutions of disputes by permitting all claims arising from the same set of facts to be resolved in a single legal proceeding. This conserves the resources of the parties and the courts, by requiring fewer cases to be filed and litigated. It also reduces the risk of inconsistent results that can arise when multiple actions are based on the same or similar facts. Nevertheless, cross-claims in U.S. federal courts are always permissive, that is, they may be raised if they are proper, but they do not have to be, and the failure to assert a cross-claim in a given action will not bar the claim from being litigated in the future. This is different from counterclaims, which are between parties that are already on opposing sides of the lawsuit. Under some circumstances, counterclaims are compulsory and must be brought in the initial action or else will be forfeited.